The Future of Finance is Here podcast looks at the changing landscape of the Australian finance industry. Our industry is financing Australia's future, a future that will be driven by access and choice for consumers, embracing innovation and competition, and generating greater economic and therefore social participation for all Australians. AFIA CEO Diane Tate talks to industry leaders and extraordinary individuals about their experiences, good and bad, and how those experiences have shaped and continue to shape their contribution to our industry and Australia. Hello and welcome to The Future of Finance is Here, AFIA's inaugural podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the role of ethics in the financial services industry, how to decide what is right and wrong, and the evolving nature of compliance, governance, culture and good decision making. Our guests will also share their thoughts on the evolving nature of ethics in the financial services industry, reflecting on how COVID-19 may have already and may continue to impact on our decision making, and what's the role of professional standards. Today, we are joined by Simon Longstaff, who is the Executive Director of the Ethics Centre. The Ethics Centre is a not-for-profit organisation that develops and delivers innovative programs, services and experiences all designed to bring ethics to the centre of personal and professional life. We're also joined by Chris Whitehead, who's the CEO of FINSEA. FINSEA is a professional membership body that represents the entire financial services industry in Australia and New Zealand. I'm keen to hear from Simon and Chris about their views about what really is good decision-making, what is ethical decision-making, and how does professional standards influence all of this? How does it collectively work together? How does it individually underpin how we drive a culture that's improved across our sector. And why is that important anyway? So welcome, Simon and Chris. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, Simon, I'm going to ask you a really simple question to start with. Many would say that humans are inherently imperfect, that mistakes are made and we learn from our mistakes. Do you agree with this or is there something else going on? I think we have to agree that we are imperfect and we all make mistakes. I certainly do. But I also think in this dimension of ethics, there's something else which is really important to understand, and that is that perfection is, in principle, impossible. It's not just that we fail it, but that we couldn't achieve it even if we wanted to. And that's not to do with any deficiency in human reasoning. It's something to do, perhaps in a mysterious way, with the structure of our existence. So human beings, we all participate in a form of being, as opposed to things like cows and ants, our form of being has this ability to go beyond instinct or desire and to make conscious choices. So animals, as far as we know, are really bound to operate on those other levels, those lower levels of instinct, desire that drives them. We certainly have those things, but we can go beyond them. But we're required to do this in conditions of radical uncertainty, and that is where values of equal weight can pull in opposite directions. So you might believe in truth and you might believe in compassion, and yet you'll find some point in your life where you know if you tell someone the truth, you're going to hurt them. And they can be perfectly balanced. And when they're perfectly balanced, you imagine two lines, one going in one direction and the other, there is no answer. There's no answer available to a god, to the world's greatest philosopher, to anyone. And then once you realise that, of course, it's quite liberating in many respects. Well, some people hate it. Some people say, oh, God, you know, why can't there be certainty? It's bloody ethics. I just need to know what I have to do. But for others, people like me, I say, well, if I can't be perfect, what can I do? And there are two things I can do. I can actually be sincere in the way that I deal with issues and I can have some skills. In other words, I don't have to be lazy about it or think it's just down to common sense. There are actual skills that you can build, ethical muscles, if you like, that you can exercise and develop. 
and that's okay. And that, I think, leads us to be a little bit more generous with each other and with ourselves. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about FinSEER and what it's been up to. I hear you've been doing some very busy work recently. Yes, we've been working very hard. FinSEER has been around since 1886, and our sole purpose has been about raising professional standards, but we really recommitted to that four years ago with all of the challenges that were facing the industry, the scandals this was prior to the Royal Commission, we felt that a gap had grown between the expectations of the community for professional behaviours and what was actually being exhibited in some cases. So we've been very busy introducing new professional qualifications and we've been advocating very strongly for the establishment of professional standards in financial services. We've just been talking to Simon about ethics, of course, and ethical decision-making. What do you see as the role of professional standards in our industry and what's its role in tackling ethical issues in our industry? Professional standards are important because they establish an expectation, a common framework. There are some things that are fairly self-evident in professional standards, the fact that you would tell people the truth, you wouldn't mislead people, that you would treat people fairly with dignity, you wouldn't discriminate and so on. So there are some things that are self-evident. Having said that, standards cannot provide for every single situation and standards are typically principles-based because you do have to apply judgment. I think the challenge and the thing that we really are working on is how do we get people to recognize that they actually have an ethical dilemma in the first place so they know to apply judgment and so they can use an ethics framework to help make that decision. Too often it's easy to just not recognize the challenge that's in front of you that it is an ethical challenge. And so what's the difference between professional standards and, say, the codes of practice, like the things that AFIA works on with our members? Codes of practice really, if you like, a commitment from the industry. They're very important. They establish a level playing ground. They set expectations in terms of how customers will be treated. And so that's important from the licensee perspective. But professional standards are much more about the behaviours of individuals. And the two are very complementary. So a code of practice does help customers, certainly, but they tend to be quite specific, naturally, because you want the industry to be consistent. Professional standards are much more principles-based, much more aspirational by their nature, and much more about not what people do, but how they do it. So skills and sincerity, they were certainly, I guess, themes that came out of the thinking of the scandals that were uncovered in the Royal Commission. Was there skills and was there sincerity? What do you think that the industry has learnt from the Royal Commission and other things like the report that was done by APRA into the various institutions, CBA was the first one, and then the other self-assessments, which has really uncovered some things about community expectations, cultural expectations, and the integrity of the finance sector? If there's no one answer, isn't that an incredible responsibility and dilemma for the finance sector to try and get through? Yeah, I mean, the fact that I say that theoretically there is in some cases, no perfection possible because there may not be an answer. That doesn't mean in a large number of cases there isn't an answer. I mean, in many of them, there will be an answer. It will be clear. The lessons, I think there have been a number of lessons, the first of which is I use the analogy when talking to a number of banks during the Hain Oil Commission. Of, you look at a scorpion, 99% of a scorpion can't do much harm to you at all. It's that tiny sting in the tail that gets you. And I use that analogy because I thought it was really important for them to set aside the tendency to say, well, it's only a handful of people that have actually been, you know, they talk in percentages. Of course, the percentages meant sometimes more than 10,000 people were in the 1%. 
But even if you just looked at it as a percentage, there was a disproportionate adverse effect caused by that tiny sting. So the first thing is don't think that because you do things well 99.9% of the time that that other missing percent doesn't matter. It has a disproportionate effect. The second lesson, I think, was that for all of the virtue and sincerity of individuals, good people can find themselves doing bad things because of the way in which the systems, policies and structures that have been developed actually drive them. And it's not just that it consciously says, oh, look, you know, go and do the wrong thing. It's a more subtle effect, which I don't think has actually been fully digested yet by people in the industry. And that is that systems, policies, practices, they all have messages embedded in them, signals, if you like, about what's really important. And so you might have a CEO and a board and other senior executives that are all singing from the same song sheet. They're all talking about core values and principles and a defining purpose that people can relate to. But they may also be presiding over these other structures which are sending mixed messages which are inconsistent with that. And what they don't understand often is that it's not just what they say and do as an individual that conveys meaning. It's also what they preside over and are responsible for. And if there's a gap, and people in an organisation look at that and they say, oh, this must be intentional. They must know that they're getting us to do this. That must be their real agenda. And so they then conclude that those in leadership positions are hypocrites. And then they say, well, if they don't believe it, why should I? And rather than being bound by this common bond of shared values and principles, what you start to have are what we call at the Ethics Centre shadow values and shadow principles and they start to emerge, and they actually start to drive good people to do bad things, and you get into all sorts of hot water. So I think some of the lessons from you know, the various scandals and reports have been learned. I think some of what APRA has done has drawn attention to the superstructure of what needs to be looked at, but I still think that the industry hasn't fully understood the mechanisms that drive conduct and the role that ethics plays within their foundations. I still think they haven't quite got it and that's going to be a problem. At the heart of the Royal Commission, it was really about putting a spotlight on the industry in terms of the expectations customers have, not just that products and services are available, but that they're available in a fair and competent way. And I accept your comment, uh, Simon, that there's still a bit for the industry to continue to learn and to embed. But Chris, I mean, what do you think is needed to raise standards in terms of conduct and competency in the industry? It's interesting because the Royal Commission spoke a lot about professionalism and it spoke a lot about culture. I say that's interesting because it then came out with a lot of very detailed recommendations, which really went to a lot more detail. And I don't feel it really addressed well enough the aspect of culture. That's really where it all starts. Beyond that, people then have a clear understanding of what conduct is expected and if they are competent. One would expect that would generally produce better outcomes for the community, would be more aligned to the purpose of what we're doing. Simon, you've already touched on the collective consciousness of the industry, but can we take it a little bit deeper and discuss you know, the ethical behaviour within the industry? I mean, at the moment, you have some people cynically saying that the industry is just supporting customers through COVID for you know, reputation reasons, not for real reasons. You know, so surely this is the industry actually redefining its purpose and demonstrating it. Yeah, and I don't think it's cynical by any means. I mean, I know enough people there to know that they are genuinely concerned for 
the actual welfare of the community, largely because many of them have employees who've been going through exactly the same situation that the community has. And they've got family and friends and a whole lot of people. So I, I don't think it's cynical. I don't think it's about reputation management. That's not to say that they're not mindful of the risks in all this because there will come a time when JobKeeper ends and people will perhaps start to default on various payments and there'll be some very difficult decisions that have to be made, not just by banks but by utility companies. It'll be a general challenge. And, of course, the moment there start to be some stories what people perceive to be harsh treatment of anyone, then people say, oh, well, they're going back to their old ways. So I think it's going to be really, really significant challenge for the whole of the finance sector to work out how it's going to navigate that while at the same time maintaining its legitimacy, as I said, of institutional arrangements. Because you can't just throw it. I mean, there's no way that any of these companies would be responsible if they were indifferent to how they respond. They must be responsible. But that means being able to tell themselves, that is internally and their extended network, and also the community, just why they do what they do, rather than just say, oh, well, that's just what makes it. There's got to be an underlying reason and something that attaches that beyond just the profitability of the institutions for their own sake, but rather the purpose they perform in an economy and for a society. So we've been talking to Chris a moment ago about embedding ethics and ethical decision-making into professional frameworks. What do you see the role of professional standards in tackling these big issues around ethics in financial services? And to the point you made earlier around the purpose of financial services, do you think that ethics is more important in the finance sector than other sectors? I think we've got to be a little bit clear about what I mean by ethics, and I'm not sure whether Chris meant the same thing with his comments that he just made. But it's to do with the difference between seeing ethics as a tool for compliance and a framework of rules or standards which are applied in order to drive a particular outcome and seeing ethics as the definition of core values and principles to support a defining purpose, which then leads you not merely to comply but to think and to exercise judgment. So you can try, as we have tried for decades, to regulate organisations so that no one can choose to do anything wrong. How do you do that? Well, you try and create a structure where the level of surveillance and the precision of the rules is such that people are more or less constrained just to follow step A, then B, then C. So it's almost like ticking the box. What that does is it creates forms of systemic risk because unless practised, the skill for responsible decision-making, it falls away because you don't have to use it. So what you do inadvertently is you create a world not only where no one can choose to do anything wrong, but you create one where no one can choose to do anything right. So ethics is ultimately about conscious decision-making, if you like, responsible decision-making, where the standard for judgment is tied back to some well-articulated values and principles, all in service of a, a clear purpose. Professional standards can support that, and they are important, but they are not the whole of that. They are part of, if you like, the infrastructure, the ethical infrastructure in an industry or a profession or even an organisation, and it needs to be invested in and built and supported, but it doesn't end there. It's also a kind of attitudinal approach and a set of skills you bring to bear where you accept that you are going to make judgments that have that responsibility. And that has very big implications for those who, for example, are in governance roles because there's a certain amount of trust you have to allow people to make decisions. And 
that's something which people can struggle with, particularly if they've been through some challenging times. We've had a conversation with Michael Smith, who's the chair of 7-Eleven at our conference. This is where this conversation started. And he was talking about acting on the generous side of fair. What does that mean to professionalism, professional standards and ethics? What does fairness mean? It's a great question because the danger is everyone has their own interpretation of what is fair. And you cannot prescribe for every situation. You cannot define fairness for every situation, every customer. There are certain, as I say, certain givens, you should follow the law. But there will be situations where your policies, your procedures, your products may not be right for the customer. And you have to exercise fairness. I think most of us have an intuitive sense of what fairness is, but uh, standards do help, if you like, create a common understanding, a common expectation around fairness. But people do need to use judgment. We define professionalism as the combination of conduct, culture, and competency. All three really have to be applied, what we're doing. The first thing to note about it is that a case involving Westpac is now really elevated for all financial institutions. The importance of fairness in and of itself, not just in terms of other criteria that used to be looked at and bundled together in the Act. So anybody listening to this really, really needs to reflect on what this means. The other word that's sometimes used as a substitute, which I'll mention, is justice. And I'll just start with that because there are three different conceptions of justice, at least. But these are the three main ones that people tend to think of. One is that justice is involving strict equality, where everybody gets treated the same. Then there's justice as a kind of procedural fairness, where you treat everybody by applying the rules in a measured and proper fashion. But there's a third kind of justice, which is justice as substantive fairness. You'll notice in both of those, there's two of those at least, there's procedural fairness and substantive fairness. And you can sort of get the idea of this. Let's suppose you run into someone on a really cold, wet night, howling wind, and two people come up to you. One is a person needing a bit of money to catch a cab so they can get to their dinner with their boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever, their partner on time. And the other person is homeless and hungry. You've got two $20 notes in your wallet. Now, strict equality would say you give them each $20. Procedural fairness would say, well, if the rule is first come, first served, and you've always operated by that, whoever gets there first will get that. But if you're inclined towards the notion of substantive fairness, then you would say, yes, it might be more convenient to catch a cab and not get too wet to get to your dinner, but actually the person who's homeless and hungry, that $40 really ought to go to them because they've got a better claim. So if you take this last form, substantive fairness, which is where I think the community's mind lies, they're not satisfied just with procedural fairness. They want relevant differences to be noticed and taken into account by the finance industry, at least in this case. They want you to notice their vulnerabilities, their strengths, their particular circumstances. They want to be seen as a whole person and not just as a transaction. And they want that to inform the judgments that are made. And providing that you're not so finely dividing that no one gets any kind of recognisably valid treatment or equal treatment. So all the homeless people should be treated the same, not just people with red hair versus that. So it's got to be a relevant difference. It's not like the you know, colour of your eyes or your hair or something. They can't. But they do want that to be noticed. And I'm not sure whether the industry yet has got the maturity or the processes in place to be able to deal with that kind of fairness, although that's what I think people are looking for. 
relevant differences, values, good decisions, good culture. I have to ask you, if you were a business leader, if you were a CEO of a, a bank or a financial institution right now thinking about how to reset, what are some of the key points that you're needing to think about to get the balance in your decisions right? Well, first thing is I'd say, who do I want my bank or organisation to be? I think the ecology of business, particularly in financial services, is changing from what it was in the past where you defined yourself in, if you like, the ecological marketplace by what you did. So if you had a new product or a better form of service or something like that, that's what would be successful. Nowadays, if you've got a new product, somebody across the road can spot that and they can catch up and replace it, replicate it, if you like, instantly. Or if you've got a new service, others can do that. So you cannot compete on those things, really, because everybody can catch up. What you can compete on are your values and your principles. Who are we? What do we stand for? How do we distinguish ourselves? What's the ethical niche, if you like, that we occupy within this? Of course, given regulation and all the rest, they're not going to be a million miles away, but find out what makes you who you are. And then what you need to do is to say, every single thing I do, from who I recruit, from the kind of suppliers I bring into my supplier chain through to the way I develop my products and services, all of those things need consistently, unerringly, to reflect those values and principles and to have that character because that's what will give coherence and avoid the possibility of being perceived as hypocritical. And that means finding people who don't necessarily come in as clones but certainly come in with a kind of affinity for your character and culture, which is beyond merely obeying your rules. That's a really key thing. The other thing I think I'd say is, look, understand if you do think that culture is important, Recognise that cultures are artefacts, that they are themselves the products of something even deeper, which are the values and principles. That is that the ethics, a physical analogy like foundation stones for buildings, or you can use a biological analogy that they're like DNA for a living organism, but they've got to be taken seriously and addressed in a conscious manner, not just allowed to go on with drift or treated as an optional extra. And you've got to care about it right at the top in the governance structures and in the highest levels of executive power. So those are the things I think you've got to do from a single institution. For the industry, I think things like the banking and finance oath, which is not about organisations but about individuals deciding that they want to have a kind of interpersonal accountability to some really core principles. That sort of thing is really important. And what I'm interested in seeing is a younger generation of people coming into finance, who I hope will almost be activists around these things, who will say to their older, more senior colleagues, just let us make for ourselves the future we aspire to have. Let us be proud of this industry. Let us build it. Let us do that around those principles in something like the banking and finance side. And we will become the champions for that, not from the top down, but I see it now growing from the bottom up because young people want to work in an industry where they get to be proud, and I think they can build that. We asked Simon if an organisation has a strong ethical culture with ethical leaders who lead by example, making ethical decisions, will we see ethical failures? There's a lot of judgement involved in making sure that ethics is at the front of the mind of an organisation and the leadership. So what's the role of professional standards in helping galvanise that front of mind ethical thinking? Professional standards do certainly provide a useful guideline, 
but they are principles-based. People will still need at times to apply judgment and they will still need to recognise that the policy may not be producing the right ethical outcome in a given circumstance for a given customer. So they have to be able to separate ethics from standards or ethics from policies. And that's an important part of what we try to convey, teach in a professional body that people have an understanding of ethics frameworks and also an ability to recognize ethical challenges. A big part of that comes, in fact, from working with your peers. A big part comes from building a common understanding. And of course, that common understanding ultimately is often expressed as standards. And there is a lot of evidence that when people discuss a situation, they're much more likely to come to a fair and ethical outcome than, if you like, just off their first own instinct, their first immediate personal reaction to a situation. Another concept around this conversation we're having is trust. The latest Edelman trust results indicate that business is actually a highly trusted source, which is actually at odds with a lot of what people think. So what is the role of business at the moment and, and probably into the future in driving you know, good decisions on behalf of itself, good decisions for the community? Because it sounds like the community is not just expecting us to have good products, services and technologies. They're also expecting financial services to be a leader within our community. Yes, and I'm not sure to what extent that's new, but I think there is certainly a much higher focus on the purpose of organisations and the contribution of organisations to social issues. And we're seeing that play out and somewhat to the annoyance of politicians that businesses are taking a leadership position on social issues. I think that there's a recognition that that is important to their people and to maintaining the engagement and support of their people, and it's important to their customers. It becomes an expectation of their customers. Certainly, Finji, for instance, is now spending a lot of time talking to our members or engaging our members on ethical finance, on sustainable finance, on green finance. So social purpose-driven or ESG-driven initiatives, and ESG is only growing and I think will only continue to grow. It becomes very much an expectation. People now absolutely do not expect industry to, if you like, simply abide by the law. They expect industry to go further and to do what's right, what the community believes is right. Well, I want to pick up, first of all, something that you mentioned in in that question around the notion of trust and the Edelman work. Trust is incredibly important. A report from Deloitte Access Economics, which shows just how important it is, even at the bottom line, forget about anything else. And a lot of people have talked about it. They're really interested in it. But what has become clearer and clearer is that trust is not only strong, but it's fragile. It's like glass. You can build buildings with glass in them and they can be really robust. But if you just find the weakness and crack one and the whole thing can shatter and trust can shatter. And the antidote, strangely enough, is not in transparency, certainly not in radical transparency, because in fact, transparency displaces trust. The whole point of trust is being able to accept that a person will make good decisions in a way that is consistent with your agreement, even when you can't see them, even when no one is observing. Because if you are always watching them and everything is fully disclosed, you don't need to trust them because you're going to be monitoring them. So there's a certain amount of transparency that you bring in to rebuild trust if it's been broken, just to get people confident that you are doing what you say you will do. But ultimately, the benefit of trust is that it actually stands in distinction to transparency. There's a tension between the two of them. 
And I think, again, this is a lesson that has not been fully understood. Some people say, oh, we'll rebuild trust by going for radical transparency. We'll open everything up without understanding that when you do that, you actually destroy the relevance of trust. And then you start to get a whole lot of other costs. You lose all the benefits that trust brings. So that's the first thing I would say about all of that. And I think if you're thinking about it from an industry's point of view, you asked about purpose. Well, the role that purpose comes here is I think you've got to know it for yourself, but you've got to be clear to others because that's the way you check whether or not the values and principles that you're driving are serving that purpose or whether or not, as I mentioned before, those shadow values and shadow principles are undermining the realisation of the purpose. And that's a question for industries. You know, why are we here? And this is a question we don't often ask. I must admit, you know, if you look about it, we forget. What's the purpose of a market? Well, it begins, if you like, in an imaginary form at a ford in a stream where two people meet. One has wool, one has wheat, one's hungry, the other's cold. That's the market. We get to someone like Adam Smith that its purpose is to make us all better off, to increase the stock of common good, even while we pursue our self-interest. What is the purpose of a bank? What is the purpose of an insurance company? These questions have got to be revisited because I think when we don't do that, then we forget about the answers. And that's why we inadvertently then get to a point where we betray those answers. And that's where trust is destroyed and even worse, potentially, legitimacy is lost. So it's not just what we do, it's how we do it? It is definitely both of those things. And seeing them fused together. And this is where values and principles, I keep mentioning both, you need both. What values do is they help you work out which option to choose. But principles tell you how to get the thing you've chosen. If you imagine a value being a bit like a signpost and you come to an intersection or a road and you want to know, do I go left or right? The value should point you in the direction that you're going to go. If it's head south, then that's where you should go. If that's where the thing that you say is good is going to be achieved. How you get there matters just as much. So principles, which are almost always forgotten. You can just go to an ordinary conversation with people in business now. These are our values. They'll talk about values and they won't mention any principles. And that's because they haven't realised that it's not enough to know where to go. You've also got to work out how to get the things that are good. Well, you started talking about instinct, Simon. My instinct is we could keep talking about this for a lot longer, but my judgment is we should probably finish this podcast now and come back to another podcast and keep the discussion going. So thank you, Simon and Chris, for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for having us. Great. Thank you very much indeed. The future of finance is here. That much we know. Be sure to tune into our next episode where we continue the conversation on creating change in the finance industry with the people that are making change happen. Let us know what you think. Leave a review or rating and tell us if there is someone you'd like to hear from or a topic you'd like covered that you think will shape the future of our industry. I'm Mel Carpenter, Executive Director, Member Services, and I'm thrilled to have you joining this series with us. If you like what you've heard, head to afia.asn.au to find out more or subscribe via your favourite podcast app.